Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollaghan Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Hello everyone, happy Christmas, season's greetings, merry solstice and all the other greetings that uh, are appropriate to this time of year. We won't be able to record a Festivus special but there is some good news. Isolde has finally been given a date for her neurosurgery and she will be going in for surgery at the beginning of February. But for now I thought I might put together another audio article based on a piece I wrote for Harp, Club and Cauldron. It's a great anthology and I'll put a link to where you can find it. The whole of it's well worth reading. It's got archaeology, stories, uh, all sorts of information on our favourite person, the Dagda. And this article is called A Cauldron of Abundance. Now the Dagda, so the story was told was the guardian of a marvellous cauldron from which no company ever went away unsatisfied. Now this description evokes the comfortable and indulgent hospitality that's so frequently associated with our favourite colourful hero of Irish story. Yet just what was this marvellous vessel? How much of its bountiful, over-the-top extravagance can we identify from the stories in which the Dagda is involved, that talk about him himself. A description of the cauldron appears in the opening lines of the, the, the Second Battle of Moitura. And according to this text, the Tuididonum brought the cauldron with them from the northern islands of the world, along with three other treasures, the Stone of Fall, which would cry out beneath the foot of every king, Lou's spear, which guarded its wielder, and Nuada's sword, kept safe in its deadly sheath. Before I go on to talk about those particular treasures, I do think it's interesting thinking about the northern islands of the world. But recent archaeology in Orkney over the last, well recent, in the last 20 years, has begun to show that once there was a centre up there uh, near the Ring of Brogar, which is, which is probably as important, maybe even more important than Stonehenge, and the level of sophistication of what was built there in the uh, late Stone Age, and uh, in fact it was closed with great ceremony at the beginning of the Bronze Age, throws new light on this idea of the northern islands of the world. And who knows what lore, what stories, even what artefacts travelled down through the Inner Hebrides and into the north of the island of Ireland. And it's always been interesting to archaeologists that the oldest sites are found not around the Brunaboyne, but up in the northwest of the country. Carrow uh, Moor comes to mind. Maybe in Neolithic times there were people coming down with stories and lore that somehow has been remembered. That's just a passing thought, but let's go back to looking at those treasures. 
I find it significant that three of these famous treasures, the sword, the spear and the stone, are particularly associated with the taking and control of power. But the cauldron's influence is so different. It's closer to the establishment and maintenance of society. Now, the cauldron itself is possibly the prime symbol of the Brugu, and his role is far more crucial than being just the caterer or provider of food for the chieftain and his nobles. Now, he was one of the, the, the three most important people. Abrigu held a specific role in the community. He was the never, the first of his societal grouping, holding the highest position at the top of the class of farmers. Now, we've seen that there were several of these paths of which you could rise to the top, the poets' class. You could be the nevert of the poets or the nevert of the warriors, who would effectively be the, the chieftain, the king. But the nevert of the farmers was the brigu, and he was in charge of the well-being of the people. He was the one who looked after their health and their physical well-being, and the fact that left made sure they had a good time too. Before he could achieve this status, there were a few conditions he had to fulfil. The Brigu was required to hold cows that could be counted in their hundreds. He also had to keep a house at the meeting of three or four roads. And he had, above all, a duty to provide hospitality to anyone who came to his door. His door was effectively always open, although I don't think it worked out quite like that in every case. He was the guardian of the hearth and uh, and heart of the tooth and maintained a place where the community gathered together to eat and to boast of their exploits. A feast which would have included persons of high status, the king and his, and his elite warriors, would have had a particularly significant purpose. It would also have represented the greatest challenges and it would have been bound about with effective rules and rigid ceremony. That's for safety's sake and also to make sure that status was correctly upheld, that no one got above themselves or was um, treated below their status. So it was the Brigger's role to ensure that every detail was correctly ordered. There's a great description of Concavas Hall in the Boyhood Deeds of Cucullan, and it describes how he was because of his brigu and the well-ordered nature of his court, he was able to divide his day into three parts. The first being devoted to watching the boys at their sport, especially that of hurling. The second to the playing of chess and draughts. The third to the pleasurable consuming of meat and drink until drowsiness sets in, which was then promoted by the exertion of minstrels and musicians, presumably storytellers as well, to induce favourable placidity of mind and disposition. Well, that's in a late 19th, early 20th century translation, and therefore it refers to chess and draughts. Of course, it wouldn't have been chess or draughts, it would have been fiddle that they were playing. But the point is, sumptuous fare and rigorous upholding of status might be crucial if there were kings or more than one local king, or warriors, warriors from more than one clan present, who held equivalent status. This potential flashpoint supported a further function of the feasting hall. It was to create a setting where differences between contending kings or champions could be safely addressed, but without combat, or at least settled under accepted protocols which were overseen by the Brigu. 
Weapons generally weren't allowed into the feasting hall, but it didn't stop a battle of wits and a battle of words and sometimes more. It may also explain why some of the most vibrant stories tell of dramatic exceptions to the norm where feasts main, fail to maintain order. Everybody likes a good story where things go wrong. And two examples of this are the tale of Brookrew's Feast, where a brigu deliberately sets out to create contention of Macdotho's pig. And here a brigu faces an impossible dilemma. Everyone lives, loves a good drama with plenty of tension, as I said. The need for this ordered space with its feasting hall is inherent in stories of the clearing and settlement of the land. The Book of Invasions, or I should call it the Book of the Taking of Ireland, records the coming of five or maybe six, depending on how you count, different groups of people to the island of Ireland, which always seems to have existed. It was always there. It was just when people arrived, it began to be the place, the land. Each of these groups puts a new shape onto the landscape. They create plains out of the wilderness, they create wells of fresh water, and they bring rivers, lakes and mountains into being. Now each group starts off from where the previous group has left off, and so they're giving a progressive shaping of the land from one generation to the next. And each generation brings them closer to a state of rightness, natural justice, the tooth of the king, the fear flathom, and that means that this truth of the king will flow between this and the other world and all will be fertile and healthy. Now we've talked about that as coir in the last question and answer session. We looked at what exactly what we meant by coir and here it is, this state where uh, fertility flows both ways between this world and the other world and both the land and its peoples are healthy, wealthy and presumably wise. Now, the Brigu requires a healthy land in order to provide a healthy feast. And in the Irish stories, good food is very much equated with good health. There's milk and meat with a seasoning of onions and celery. Now, this is regarded as a recipe for robust good health. The people in these stories, they knew that vegetables and herbs were also important, not just meat. The Brigu promotes good health and well-being and his cauldron along with its accompanying pronged flesh fork are the symbols of his calling and his ability. This description of a cauldron in action is from Macdotho's pig. Every man used to thrust the flesh fork into a cauldron and whatever he brought out at the first catch was his portion. So you can imagine a big fork like a, a small pitchfork was just flung into the cauldron whether it was a stew or maybe into the pig itself and great chunks of meat could be brought out and basically you got whatever you took. While the Dagda is remembered in many stories and folklore I think he comes into sharpest focus in the Battle of Moitura. We first see him striding into view after the Dodonan have made the unfortunate decision to appoint the half-fovera Bresh as their king now, under Bresh's rule, even the greatest of the Dodonan heroes are set to work. Even the Dagda himself has to undertake menial work. Yet, even laid under tribute as he is, we can still glimpse him as the keeper of the cauldron. He's set to work on what suits his nature. He's a Roth builder, creating the homestead of, of uh, Roth Bresh, the, uh, the fort of Bresh. But at this time, he's being starved by the niggardly poet, Creedenvale. 
Now, his response to the abuse of the hospitality laws is really good. It's worthy of this nevered of the Brigus, this Brigu of Brigus. The doctor is really clever. He feeds the greedy poet with the best bit of the foods that Creedenvale demands. But uh, Angus uh, suggests that he hides gold in these bits of food. So what the what the, the, the poet, what the satirist is given is food disguised with poisonous gold in it and these best bits of gold kill Creedenvale. Even the Dagda's famous boundary-marking forked club, that's the one he drags around in the Battle of Moitura, may well echo the flesh fork I mentioned earlier, or, or the one that comes from the quote of, in Macduffo's Pig. And this fork is important. It's the Brigu's instrument for correct division of abundance. Everybody gets what he's owed. Everybody gets a portion whether it's the meat of the feeding, feasting hall or the allotment of fertile land. There's a level in which you get what you can take, but it's overseen by the wisdom of the Brugu and his, his special knowledge. Later in the Moitura story, the Dagda sets out to the Fovra camp. He goes to spy, but he's not really hiding. The enemy see him coming and they deliberately set out to mirror and match the Dugda's hospitality. They provide the Dugda with a meal of stupendous proportions. They fill the king's cauldron with 80 gallons of new milk, equal quantities of meal and fat. Then they add a whole goat, sheep and pigs and boil them up with porridge. Then they pour the concoction into a deep pit in the ground. Now that I don't think any one of us would want that as Christmas dinner. But the Dagda is obliged by custom to consume every bit. And of course, because he's the Nevid of Brigus, he can do it. He laps up every scrap of the food with a ladle large enough to seat a man and a woman in it. So the Fovera, having tried to make certain that there could be no way the Dagda will reproach them for inhospitality, well, they uh, don't succeed. He manages to outdo them. And this super Brigu feat, I think, allows us our most endearing glimpse of the great Dagda as he staggers back to his own place, replete from the massive meal. And here he appears, not clad in a crimson tunic or shod in gold or sandals, which are usually the giveaway of another world character, but in a far more down-to-earth, earthy, homely style. And this is a quote. It was not easy for the warrior to move along on account of the size of his belly. His appearance was unsightly. He had a cape to the hollow of his elbows and a grey-brown tunic around him as far as the swelling of his rump. His long penis was uncovered and he had on two shoes of horsehide with the hair on the outside. It's good, isn't it? He really is just as he is, a homely image of someone who's eaten too much and perhaps drunk too much. The final section of the tale reveals the most complete Brigu nature of the Dagda. As the nevid of the farmer class, his responsibilities are not just to the provisioning of the feasting hall, but as I said before, to the fertility of the entire land. And while still enthralled to the miserly bresh, He'd taken the Macog's advice and accepted only one heifer from all the cattle of Ireland as his wages. 
And here's another quote. Then the doctor brought his work to an end and Brush asked him what he would take as wages for his labour. The Dagda answered, I require that you gather the cattle of Ireland in one place. The king did that, as he asked, and he chose a heifer from among them, as the Makok had told him. That seemed foolish to Brush. He had thought that he would have chosen something more. And in that we can see that Brush has taken control of all the cattle of Ireland. It's no longer allotted and uh, distributed among all, all the people who should own it so that, so that all the land can be wealthy and all the people healthy. It's all now kept by the king. And kind of true Norman style, really. So Brush is doing something very wrong. He's taken over the role of... He's taken the fertility to himself. And this, of course, is why the land effectively becomes a wasteland. But the Dagda has prepared for the fact that that can be put right later on because he understands the role of the Brigu. And this, and this one heifer will be the key to the restoration of the land and its fertility. After the battle, the Dagda with Ogmer and Lu go to the Fovra feasting hall. And after the Dagda has taken back his own harp, it's the harp of summer and winter, the harp of the four corners, the one that gives us our word Kor. And here's another quote. The Dagda brought with him the cattle taken by the Fovera through the lowing of one heifer which had been given him for his work, because when she called her calf, all the cattle of Ireland which the Fovera had taken began to graze. So it seems that the Dagda has no need to count his cattle in mere hundreds. All the cattle of Ireland including the Glasgowan herself, the symbol of fertility, lie under his protection. A lovely image. So far, we've identified the Dagda's marvellous cauldron as an example of the symbolic badge of the Brigu and the Dagda as the Brigu of Brigus. But if this cauldron is significant enough to be one of the treasures of the Dadalan, it might be worth examining other examples of magical vessels with attributes that might give throw further illumination on this cauldron of the Dagda. In the Battle of Moitura, there's a marvellous well that appears to have features in common with the cauldron. Dean Kecht, one of the four Dodonan craftsmen and the physician of his people, kept this well, aided by his two sons, Octriel and Mia, and his daughter, Aravid. Of course, there's a wonderful story of Aravid and how she grows from her brother's grave all the herbs that will clear, cure every illness that ever was, will or shall be, and how they're scattered as she gathers them on her cloak. But uh, Shinskelela, that's another story, and I need to keep talking about the Dagda at the moment. Let's get back to the well. The virtue of the well that was kept by Octriel and Mia, Candy and Kecht, as well as Aravid, was that it, if uh, anyone was injured during the battle, they would cast, quote, they would cast their mortally wounded men into the well as they were struck down, and they were alive when they came out. This is a well rather than a cauldron. But there is a near analogue to be found in the Mabinogi of Branwen, that's the second branch of the Mabinogin. Now there, Bran the Blessed offers a magical cauldron to the Irish king 
in compensation for the dishonour caused by the disfigurement of his horses after the marriage of his sister Branwen. He says, I will give you this cauldron, and the peculiarity of the cauldron is this. A man who is killed today and thrown into the cauldron, by the next day he will be as good as he was at his best. Except that he will not be able to talk. Now, Dianchaic's well was later renamed the Well of Octrioloch. It was named after the son of the Fovera king, who filled the well with stones, thus rendering it absolutely useless. The Welsh cauldron of regeneration was brought back to Ireland by a mytholoch. Now, neither are directly connected to the Dagda, and it's hardly surprising because, however they're concerned with regeneration and resurrection, they're not representational of the Brugu's skills specifically. Both Dean Cake's well and the Bronze Cauldron hold regenerative healing powers, but these are used as tools of war, providing ongoing sources of battle-fit warriors required to maintain battle numbers. And as I said before, the cauldron is the one of the treasures, the only one which isn't connected with power and leadership and war. Neither Dianchaic's well or Bran's cauldron are vessels of comfortable satiation from which no company ever goes away unsatisfied. And I think that's a big difference. There's one other magical vessel that might be worth considering, and that's the Fenian crane skin bag. This bag had been stolen from Finn's father and the boy, Finn, wins it back uh, when he goes searching for the lost father. The bag, Finn is told, once belonged to Lou himself and it contained a variety of treasures and magical weapons given to the hero, Lou, by his foster father, Malanan, to help him beat Balor in the Battle of Moitura. The treasure even included Malanan's own sword. The only problem with the bag is it remains empty and less opened at high tide. It sounds a very useful item, but it has really it has more in common with a D&D bag of holding than with the Douglas Cauldron. This is no wishing bag. There may be limited access to the contents, but they don't vary. I wonder if the bag is not a plot contrivance to ensure that Finn has an equal claim to the treasures of Mananan with Lou. In poem 51 of the Duna of Finn, the Book of the Lay of Finn, the Fianna have a boisterous encounter with a mysterious warrior who has a sword piercing his head. Now, the stranger turns out to be Mananan, and in this story, Mananan wins the fight and he keeps his sword, so it doesn't end up in the treasure bag. Effectively, it appears that the cauldron of the Dagda is just what it says it is. It's a cooking pot. Certainly it's a very special pot, worthy of a very special brigu. It symbolises health and contentment, abundance and fertility. But it is a vessel providing physical nourishment. It's not a magic holding bag, it's not a well of regeneration or resurrection. Even the Dagda's signature club may well symbolise the fork used to grant each person the portion owed to him. There may be one more clue for us to explore. There is a reference in the long and complex tale The Destruction of Dodurga's Hostel that concerns the Dagda. Here we find him in the kitchen where he's recognised as one of the three chief Fulactori, the attendants of the Fulok, the cooking pit. 
Now the kitchen seems quite a likely place to find this homely and practical hero. He may be a brigu of the highest status, but you'll always find him in the kitchen at parties. He enjoys his food. However, I wonder if he may not be cooking up a more marvellous and transformative treat in that magical cooking pot of his. Perhaps this marvellous vessel is remembered not for the fashioning of meaty stews, but for the brewing of beer. Along with wine, it was certainly a central part of every feast and probably accompanied every meal for an extremely long period. Now, until really comparatively recently, uh, right down to the current century almost, Beer was a lot healthier to drink than water. Beer could be readily preserved and the brewing process ensured that it wouldn't hold the unseen bacterial dangers lurking in water sources. Now, germ theory might not have been understood, but the keeping powers of beer would have been an observable fact. It has recently been suggested that the stone troughs found around the circular cult centre enclosures at Gwebekli Tepe in eastern Turkey may well have held beer. Now, I need to talk a little bit about Gwebekli Tepe. I went there a few years ago, and as a matter of fact, they hadn't done the analysis, which uh, now tell us that those troughs around these circular enclosures did hold beer. Um, they've now found analysis of residues in, uh, found in these troughs uh, seems to support the conjecture. Now, Gobekli Tepe is an astonishing place. If you don't know it, find pictures. I'll put up a link to Gobekli Tepe. It's not far from the Syrian border. Only a very small part of it has been uncovered, excavated. And a lot of it, more of it, will not be uncovered or excavated for a long time. Once, uh, it's true that the archaeologist who was involved and has been involved with it for many years, George Smith, died a couple of years ago. But I think it's in a very sensitive part of the world and probably safer under the ground. But those, for a start, its date is around 10,000 BCE. Perhaps some people have suggested suggested that parts of it might be older. Uh, These beautiful circular enclosures with relief-carved stones of animals, uh, everything from foxes to deer to spiders to all sorts of different animals, boars. And in the centre of these enclosures, in some of them there are troughs, and in others there are these great tall tea stones. All this is dressed stone with beautifully cut edges. And these central tall pillars in the middle probably represent human beings or maybe some people have suggested they're divine beings, but they could just be humans as well. But these are shown in geometric, stylized form, where the animals are all shown in very naturalistic ways. There's a whole language of image there which we nobody understands. But they are certainly the most remarkable sights I've ever seen. And I think they must be possibly some of the most important in the entire world. But let me talk about the beer. Now, as I said, they've, they have analysed residues. And because... It's such a dry area. They've been able to look at uh, the, the residues these troughs contain. And it seems likely that it was beer that was being brewed. You can imagine brewed beers cementing communities in celebration and ceremony since hunter-gatherer groups first joined forces. 
It's even been mooted that providing sufficient grain for beer may have even kick-started the first cultivation of cereals. And it is true that the icorn that led to the cultivated wheat are found around that area of eastern Turkey within 20 miles of the the site of Gobekli Tepe. It's that area that that icorn seems to come from. So who knows, it may well be that this was the first place that beer was brewed and that that's why everybody gathered together to celebrate or to swap uh, resources, to trade and all sorts of things. Well, yeah, what better way could they have brought, been brought together than by the brewing of ceremonial beer. I think that's a really interesting idea. The first communities gathered together uh, and farming grew from that. Well, there's a thought, isn't it? I just find that amusing. Getting away from Gobekli Tepe and coming back a little closer to the present, there are there is a very common Irish field monument called the Fulloch Fear, sometimes known as the Morrigan's Cooking Pits. These... Nobody quite knows what these were for, but they seem to be connected with, with cooking or, or something similar. They generally date from the Bronze Age and they're composed of rectangular stone-lined troughs conventionally, and, and conventionally assumed, as I said, for the cooking of animal carcasses by placing hot stones into the water-filled troughs. Suggestions have been made for alternative uses, maybe bathing, dyeing or tanning, but experimental archaeologists in Ireland have recently discovered that they might have been absolutely ideal for the brewing of beer. The same archaeologists who suge also suggest that wooden stirring implements regularly used could activate fermentation in subsequent warts. Um, these wands might have been passed down the generations as an item with magical ability. Now you think about it, you have these sticks which are used to, to um, mix the mash and they're absorbing the bacteria in them that uh, will allow fermentation next time they use. So they become sticks that start fermentation. That's kind of a magical stick, which is why I called it a wand. And maybe might have might be another aspect of the Dagda's Club. That's pure speculation, but it's a thought. As a traditional name, as I said, for these Fulakfiakis, Morrigan's cooking pits, it may provide another interesting connection with our own Fulaktori, the Dagda. In, in the Battle of Moitura, the Morrigan's relationship with the Dagda is far more than that of a battle colleague. She's his poet and herald, but beyond that, she's the Dagda's woman. And before the battle, they meet and mate together over the river Unshin in a beautiful passage described with gentle eroticism. That's all I can say about it. And perhaps together, their union bought more than the gift of restoration of natural justice and the fertility, and the fertility of the land. For perhaps with the water and the Dagda stick, which could create something very special out of the grain that was grown on the land and the stick and the water and it could have brought about a mystical transformation of grain into beer. So the Dugda's marvellous cauldron of abundance may well have contained a magical substance allowing each to find whatever was desired and from which no company went away unsatisfied. 
So, if over this uh, festival season you sit down at a celebratory table with close friends and family and maybe share a, a drink of beer or alcohol, just raise a glass to the Dagda, whose cauldron of abundance and conviviality we can still share. And may not one of us go away unsatisfied. So that's just a thought for the festive season. And maybe if we overdo it just a little bit, we can blame the Dagda. <laughs> well, it's lovely to be putting this short piece together. And as I say, it's based on an article I wrote, but I thought this time I'd talk it through. And I am preparing another audio article on storytelling. It's nearly ready, but not quite because every time I try and put together an article, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think after, I don't know whether it'll be four or Isolde's out of hospital, we're certainly planning to set up another Q&A session because I think Isolde on the last one was really interesting when she got talking about uh, the various grades of poets and it, well, the grades of poets, I just keep thinking of the Bramble Hound. It, and, and the blockhead I think they were really good so I was thinking that I've, I thought of several questions that we could uh, usefully talk about and then I hope when she's feeling a little stronger we'll get back back to circling the toyne because there's always more stories to tell well thank you for listening and I'll talk I'll talk with you again soon wish you all a very joyful winter winter holiday uh, season's greetings and a merry solstice.